0: Canada's arms exports to to Israel are at a 30-year high, uh, really accelerating, uh, really picking up starting in the early 2000s and then um, under Stephen Harper 2010. The Electronic Intifada.
1: The Electronic Intifada.
0: The Electronic Intifada.
1: This is the Electronic Intifada Podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman.
2: And I'm Asa Winstanley.
1: Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada Podcast. I'm Nora Barrows Friedman with Asa wynn Stanley. And we have a fantastic episode for you today coming up later on in the program. We speak with Dr. Tarek Lubani, an emergency room physician based in London, Ontario, who works closely with physicians and medical personnel inside Gaza. He's the co-founder of the GLIA project, which which works to provide communities with low-cost medical devices using open-source technology and 3D printing, and we'll be talking to him about a new initiative he's involved in to get 3D printed medical supplies into the hands of doctors in Gaza as fears of yet another Israeli assault looms. But first, we're glad to have Michael Buchert back on the show today to talk about a new report. His organization, Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, or CJPME, has just released on Canada's arms sales to Israel. Michael is the vice president of C- CJPME. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast, Michael Bukert. Thanks so much. Uh, really happy to be back. Thanks for being back. Um, There's so much to get into. Let's start with this report. Um, In the executive summary, CJPME says that, quote, the annual value of Canada's exports of military goods to Israel have been accelerating in recent years, and in 2020 reached their highest level in over three decades, even when adjusted for inflation. Last December, uh, as you may remember, Robin Wetlaufer, uh, Canada's envoy to the West Bank, claimed that Canada neither funds nor arms Israel, uh, which was quite a statement. <laughs> and she did not walk that back. Let's talk about how Canada both funds and arms Israel. your reaction to Wetlaufer's lazy and insidious lies, and uh, what that says about Canada's positioning here.
0: Well, I guess it's, uh, yeah, it was really embarrassing to see that response from Canada's diplomat. Uh, I think there, when people like her say that kind of thing, Canada's not arming Israel, I think they're taking a very technical, narrow approach to say, well, Canada is not uh, directly providing military transfers to the Israeli government. But Canada does approve the export of private sales of military equipment, uh, millions of dollars uh, and, and peak, uh, spiking up to $20 million worth of, of military goods in, in 2020, which has been, yeah, just accelerating for years. So it's 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 very um, I guess, like kind of a sneaky way to, to, mm-hmm. to try to deny uh, that fact. Um, but it's also consistent with other. Uh, sort of other destinations as well, Canada will will claim that uh, Canada is not supplying arms to the parties of the conflict in Yemen while transferring billions of dollars in, in, in arms to Saudi Arabia and, and millions to the United Arab Emirates and other countries that are very much directly involved uh, in, in that war. So, so it's a very narrow a- approach to try to avoid any accountability or responsibility for Canadian policy, but everyone can see right through it. Uh, and I think w- the results of this report show just how, how ridiculous those kinds of claims are. Yeah. Um, as well and, as
2: it's, yeah. it's interesting historically though, in a way that um, even though it's a very weak denial, do you think there's any significance in the fact that historically she felt the need to even deny hmm. it? That it's like maybe in past years it would have been seen, certainly in American politics. I know there's a you know great deal of difference in Canadian politics, but um, of some as something to be proud of with arming Israel. What do you think hmm. about that?
0: Yeah, I do think that there has been a changing tide a little bit in public opinion around this and within some of the. Uh, political parties, uh, and among civil society, uh, that is increasingly looking at uh, Israel's human rights violations very clearly, and increasingly um, uh, publicly putting support behind the need to suspend arms exports. So so there, I do think that there is, yeah, definitely a shift, whereas, I mean, if you look at the past 20 years, Uh, clearly most Canadian officials have no problem sending greater and greater amounts of military goods uh, to that conflict Uh, but that is something that is historically somewhat new as well Uh, and one thing maybe we'll talk about is some of the historical context in the report is that there was a time when it would have been seen as inconceivable to be supplying uh, weapons to Israel as it is uh, conducting violence against civilians. So, So I think for a long time uh, I guess it has been just seen as unconditional uh, or, or unexamined, but that that is, is, is changing.
1: Yeah. Well, let's get into the report. Um, what are some of the key findings here and what kinds of exports and weapons deals are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: maybe just to say uh, a little bit about why we produce this too is uh, following the events of, of May of last year uh, with the escalation of Israeli violence, we did see this outpouring of uh, support across Canada for Palestine, and we uh, saw some um, uh, political political figures and civil society uh, take pretty bold stances that we haven't seen before. Uh, The the new Democratic Party, for example, which is our nominally left-wing party, uh, uh, responded to this violence by calling for suspension of arms uh, until the end of the occupation. Uh, and I, that was a pretty bold step uh, from them, pushed by you know uh, grassroots members, but still a kind of a new development. And we saw similar uh, calls from the Canadian Labour Congress and dozens of other labor organizations um, calling for the suspension of, of arms. And so it was becoming quickly sort of like a, a consensus among sort of progressive sectors in, in Canada, but there is no research or, or evidence into Canada, Israel military trade that could provide you know context uh, and, and data for for those debates. And so we thought, well, what it what, what exactly is Canada exporting? How does this change over time? And so we partnered uh, with uh, Project Plowshares, which is a a very prominent uh, disarmament uh, think tank. Uh, in Canada who provided a lot of guidance and they provided uh, the data sets going back to 1978, some of the numbers for us to write this report. Uh, And and yeah, and the big big picture is that Canada's arms exports to to Israel are at a 30 year high, uh, really accelerating, uh, really picking up starting in the early 2000s and then um, under Stephen Harper 2010, uh, and then uh, twenty fifteen as well, there's been e- even a sharper increase uh, since then under Justin Trudeau. Um, so that that's sort of the the big picture in terms of the the numbers, but uh, we also wanted to get into like what exactly is Canada exporting and unfortunately we we really don't have concrete um, uh, evidence. Canada's export regime is very uh maybe secretive isn't the right word, but it's certainly not open. They don't provide information accessible to the public, for example, what exactly is being exported, who it's being exported to, and how those goods might be used. Um, so what they do provide are these very broad categories, things like uh like one of the categories is uh components related to a military spacecraft, another category. Uh, which Canada provides a lot of of arms under this category, is things related to explosives, uh, bombs, torpedoes, um, all, all sorts of things could be included in this bucket of, of things. And then the other one that is very prominent among Canadian exports is related to uh, military aircraft. And I, I mean, that could be anything. It could be full systems, full military uh, uh, aircraft, or it could be components, sensors, um, uh, engines, all sorts of things could be included in that and then eventually incorporated into uh, like fighter jets. Uh, so, we, so we don't know the specifics, which is really troubling, uh, but we try to bring together as much detail as we can about, about what these exports could, could include.
2: And to clarify one point there, have I understood you right, that Canada is exporting parts for military spacecraft to Israel? Well, we we don't know exactly,
0: but that's one of the categories. Uh, Actually the category- What
2: could fall under that category?
0: uh, Let me just read to you how they uh, describe it because it's just so vague. Um, Electronic equipment, military spacecraft and components, uh, which isn't specified elsewhere. Uh, Yeah, again, we don't know. Uh, Canada did- Right, so uh, it's
2: part of a wider bracket, including electronic equipment, right? Which could be anything.
0: Right. Right. But but in this bucket, it's sort of implied that it's related in some way to a space. So so it is probably related in some way to Israel's space program. Uh, But, yeah, uh, I mean, again, that could it it could be so many different things. Uh, And, you know, the space program, like when you think of like satellites or other things it could be part of traditionally, we don't think of those as like munitions per se. But we know that the Israeli uh, space program is very connected to Uh, the defense industry to uh, defense objectives and um, some of the uh, you know every once in a while there is a a press release about a big contract and so we know that uh, some Canadian suppliers did uh, win this contract to provide goods as part of this uh, satellite that was uh, I think it was made by the Israeli uh, Israel Aerospace Industries right I think this is yeah yeah, and, and this specific Satellite, I don't think is sort of a defense satellite per se, but uh, IAI has produced other, um, I guess, more military specific uh, satellites for defense purposes. So right. um, or
1: surveillance, um, ex- exactly. Is Israel's mm. major industry right now. Yeah,
0: yeah, surveillance. I mean, presumably inside and outside right. its, its territory. So, uh, I it, it raises a lot of questions. The fact that it's under this category of 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 military of munitions uh, suggests that it, it does, it is related in some way to, uh, to, to Israel's military objectives.
1: And is this just, is this like opaque, you know, vagueness um, specifically around Israel or does Canada also not really provide much information about the munitions and equipment it supplies to other countries?
0: I think this is across the board that this would be for all military exports to all countries would have this similar, very vague reporting. Hmm. However, what I've heard from our partners at Project Plowshares, which is following this closely, is that for Israel, it's less readily available to find this information. Uh, That might mean that companies that are uh, winning contracts are less likely to issue a press release about it or be open about it. Um and so maybe there is sort of a stigma uh there that they, they don't want it to be known that they're providing weapons to Israel, but um uh but in terms of the broad the, the actual reporting, it's it's across the board, I believe.
2: Wow. Well, that's good then. That's 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 progress if there's a stigma.
1: <laughs> if they want right. to they want to hide their dealings with Israel, yeah. Amazing. Um can you talk about the the amount of money we're talking about here? Um, you know, how how much funds is going to these, you know, very nebulous, opaque uh, arms export deals?
0: Well, the, the total, uh, the 30-year high that I talked about in, in 2020 was just under $20 million. So it's not a huge amount of money, if you think of it, in terms of Canada's exports to other countries. For example exports to Saudi Arabia are billions of dollars a year. Yeah. 20 million uh, doesn't seem that high. However, I always think about it as uh, as the context. We're not selling weapons to Ireland. We're selling uh, weapons to a country that is actively engaged in the military occupation, whose maintenance requires daily violence and is ga- engaged in uh, military offensives and Uh, abusive practices that amount to apartheid, according to Amnesty International and and growing consensus in in civil society. So any amount of of value to to this context presents a human rights risk. Uh, So I think it's important that uh, we try to reduce that number and and eliminate these these exports, um, rather than worry too much about, about the numbers in comparison to to other countries, it's right. it's all very dangerous. Um, and, and again, the 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 bulk of this is within those three categories that I talked about. With uh, about a quarter, more than a quarter of of Canada's exports in the last five years would be in that bucket related to bombs, torpedoes, rockets, missiles, and other explosives. And again, it could be the it could be any as any aspect within that. We could be talking about. Um, equipment that is incorporated in some way into airstrikes, uh, airstrike capabilities. It could be the uh, stunning grenades and uh, rubber coated bullets that we saw Israeli forces use this weekend against uh, Palestinians in Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, it could be all, you know, all sorts of different things. Um, and un- unfortunately, we just don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, talking about uh... You know, the the kinds of, of I mean, do, do we know, like, are there companies that you can name um, who, you know, Canadian companies that are engaging in these export deals? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, the actions that are happening right now in Asa's backyard in, in London a, across the UK um, against uh, Israel's El Beat factories, um, where, you know, activists are, are literally, you know, pinpointing and and targeting the companies that are involved in actively producing weapons that go to kill and injure Palestinians. Are there, you know, is there a list of companies uh, in Canada that are involved in in these uh, crimes?
0: Well, as I mentioned, most companies don't publicize uh, their role in these exports. And so, you know, we can find a small number of companies, a press release here or there. Um, but so far, we haven't done enough research to sort of bring that together and to, to say, the, you know, these are the list of of companies we're worried about. Um, there is a major arrow, uh, or I guess, uh, um, a major company near uh, Montreal that produces um, equipment that would be incorporated into uh, military aircraft, so um, producing aircraft engines and that kind of thing, those exports might not even be monitored and classified as mm-hmm. military exports because there's this long standing loophole related to exports that have dual, could have dual purposes, could be for civilian or military uh, exports. So, so the actual value of military exports could be much bigger if you if you remove these these loopholes and, and look at this in a in a complete way. Uh, you mentioned Elbit Systems. Uh, certainly, we've seen uh, permit requests uh, due to a parliamentary investigation release some unclassified information that we know that at least some companies are trying to sell. Uh, weapons to to Elbit to be incorporated into whatever broader systems, um, but we don't know that much about that, uh, and that's something too, you know, our r- report doesn't look at uh, purchases of military goods, but Canada did recently purchase a, a $36 million surveillance drone from Elbit Systems mm-hmm. and just purchased, I think, $8 million worth of, of uh, surveillance technology, of military technology that Um, Israel boasted of using to uh, enhance its targeting process in uh, May of last year in Gaza. So very much directly complicit in these kinds of violations. And yet Canada uh, has no issues with with purchasing these kinds of goods. So it's it's a broader it's a broader problem than even what we discuss
1: in this report.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It sounds it all sounds very opaque. Like you're talking a lot about the things that you don't know, Um, Do you think that's a reflection on i mean i suppose this is the way the weapons the arms trade works that they don't they like to i suppose they like to boast of their successes but then again they have the they don't want negative publicity um do you think this is pretty standard for the arms trade or is it something that um i mean you've mentioned how you know then there may be an extra stigma there when it comes to israel um are you optimistic as well about being able to discover some of these uh known unknowns
0: <laughs> i well one of the recommendations that we have is calling for a parliamentary investigation because you know the public can't access this information but uh parliamentarians can and so they can they can um, get get documents in front of them that actually put, goes into far more detail. Uh, what exactly is being sold? Who is purchasing it? Um, and then we can figure out potentially the the actual risk. Uh, so uh, there are you know there are people uh, parliament parliamentarians who have talked about in arms uh, suspending arms. So we're hoping that we can. Um, to uh, convince some politi- those politicians to bring this on board and and to push for that kind of an investigation, um, so we can get that information. In the meantime, we what our other recommendation is to suspend military trade with Israel, given the context. Um, like as I said, we don't know a, the, the specifics, but we do know that the context is one of occupation, of military offensives, of blockade, of apartheid, and no. We can't consider any arms exports into that context to be safe, and similarly with with purchases, um, purchasing goods f- from that context makes us complicit in in their ability to conduct uh, these violations. So, so th- there is no safe uh, exports. We need to we need to suspend that completely. But uh, it, it it is important for accountability purposes to actually find that information and and get. Uh, MPs to dig into that so that we can get a better sense of the actual, um, I guess, Canada's record in, in contributing to these to these crimes.
1: Michael, I wanted to ask um, a little bit about your reaction to, um, you know, that Canada's ongoing stalling and and attempts to thwart uh, the International Criminal Court um, in its investigation of Israeli war crimes. Um You know, especially now when we see, as you mentioned, you know, uh, Israeli violence meted out at Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. We saw two separate uh, uh, bombing campaigns just in the last few days in Gaza. Um, What can you say about, you know, Canada's insistence that that it is, you know, an arbiter of, of peace and justice around the world, that it's very polite Canada? while it is engaged in these arms exports, while, well, you know, not just to Israel, but as you mentioned, to Saudi Arabia, um, you know, not to mention the 20 years of occupation it was involved in in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, but also, you know, and then at the same time, um, trying to uh, punish the ICC for investigating Israel.
0: Yeah, I think Canada has... This reputation of being sort of like a a middle power, like a uh, unaligned or somehow sort of like a balanced presence, a a constructive presence. But uh, when we look especially at its international efforts, it really over the last couple of decades has sided with a small number of countries. Uh, in opposing any efforts to achieve justice at the international level by Palestinians um, or or to to even lightly criticize Israel. We see, uh, you know, when there is there are rounds of voting on different resolutions about Palestinian rights at the United Nations. Canada uh, for for years has sided with a a tiny handful of countries and voting against virtually all of them um you know on votes that are something like 140 160 countries in favor five opposed with canada um the us israel and then usually a, a few like tiny island uh countries so that's that's canada's actual record and and when it comes to any anything they they try to stop the icc investigation since then they they've been quite quiet about it but they were very quick to support uh, ICC investigation of alleged uh, Russian war crimes in Ukraine uh, which which is interesting. Um, Canada uh, had abstained on a motion well basically you know the United Nations formed that commission of inquiry to investigate Isra- Israeli war crimes last year. Uh, Canada is not on the Human Rights Council so it didn't have a vote, but there was an opportunity where Israel tried to put forward an amendment had a different UN body to basically defund that commission and Canada decided to abstain on that vote. Um, basically out of respect for the independence of the Human Rights Council while expressing its reservations or its concerns over the commission. So it doesn't support a commission of inquiry but does support a commission in, in regards again to, to Russian uh, crimes. And this is a consistent pattern I think that's one of the most interesting things about the last couple of months is that Canada's response to Russia shows, uh, it provides an an example of the types of language and actions that Canada can take when it actually wants to. And it shows us that the reason that it doesn't directly criticize any Israeli actions, it doesn't support an investigation uh, or any of these other mechanisms of accountability is because Canada chooses not to hold Israel accountable and makes it just, we knew that already, but it just makes it so clear. And many of these mechanisms are exactly the same ones we support in one context, we don't support them yeah. in another. And, and that's Canada's actual legacy or, or sort of uh, influence at the international level. It's just um, marginalizing itself against the majority of, of the international community.
1: Um, finally, we wanted to ask you, um, you know, for the last few years, you've been uh, uh, the monitoring one of the most um, insipid uh, Israel lobby um, organizations and formations, um, Israeli-funded, uh, you call it um, Israel's Troll Army Um it was this app called act.il we've all done uh, extensive reporting on this app and the so-called missions that it sends its users on to bully harass smear and target um, supporters of Palestinian rights um, and uh, as you reported on your on your um, Twitter account that monitors this uh, this app um, it decided to kind of pivot to a different, formation. It's no longer, um, recruiting and, uh, sending its users out through the app, but it's kind of doing something a little bit less public these days. Can you talk a little bit about act.il and, and the significance of, um, you know, it, it announcing that it's kind of closing, uh, (laughs) <laughs> their, yeah their well I, w- I would
0: say it was shut down yeah. essentially because you know it started ACTIL started as this private um initiative at a private israeli university of you know students creating this rapid response system um to get people to talk you know, say nice things about israel online right. and then that became so successful by their metrics that they uh this israel's ministry of strategic affairs decided that they are going to come on board and there was this huge rollout of this app where you know at the at the time they were pushing sponsored content and all of these Israeli newspapers promoting it. They uh, uh, uh Gilad Erdan spoke at this rally talking about this app, about how it was an Iron Dome of Truth. Um the the, the website <laughs> got had that. a big <laughs> logo for the Ministry of Strategic Affairs. Uh eventually they started to roll that back change the position on the web page of where the logo is. Mm -hmm. um, And and then sort sort of back out to the point where they were denying that the Israeli government had any role in this project Hmm. at all, which was really interesting. Uh, And I mean, the app lasted for four or five years, um, which I was surprised that it lasted that long, but they eventually just decided to shut it down. And yeah, there, if you, are a user of the app, you'll still get emails to complete these different tasks. But there's no app. There's no central place to go. Um, the the gamification approach is gone. There's a lot of aspects to this uh, which which have been totally abandoned. And it is now it's probably just a, a private sort of initiative once again. Um, I never thought it was that successful in the first place. A lot of its missions were very amateurish and or you know just irrelevant. Um, you've done great reporting on some of the missions that were more insidious or could have had a more harmful impact uh, cyberbullying students mm-hmm. um, uh, trying to shut down california 's uh, ethnic studies curriculum, all sorts of things where it, w- with a localized impact it could be more successful getting teaching a s- students fired from their jobs that kinds of things mm-hmm. but um, overall i don't I think it was kind of an embarrassing thing and even in recent years, they were sort of trying to move its activities off of the app and into private channels, like a Telegram channel, a Facebook group, hmm. things like that, where they, they felt like they could have a more of a rapid response that way. Um, so I think I, for what, you know, for whatever reason, they've decided the app doesn't work. I think it's, uh, I, I, I highly doubt that it's going to continue to grow um, as just like, an email list, (laughs) essentially, (laughs) or, you know, these sort of diverse channels, WhatsApp or whatever. Um, I think, I think we can take it as, as a positive development that they've basically, it's a, they've decided that it's a failure and they're shutting it down.
2: That's great. I think the the wider context is that the ministry of strategic affairs itself has folded in a way that it's been, um, publicly shut down but its functions folded into the ministry of foreign affairs and you know this is was part of and 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 you know the whole demise of the ministry of strategic affairs is a really interesting subject which we haven't really covered um and uh we should really but um it's it's a big topic because it goes to the heart of the israel lobby the global israel lobby and the state of israel's um orchestration of it its coordination of it um and how it was um you know how the state of israel directly intervenes in the affairs of other countries where where um the issue of israel is more contested so especially britain and the united states canada and so forth um and i you know i yeah i mean i i i agree with what you're saying um i do think it was an embarrassment to them which was to i mean to to a faction of the government right so to me it were with with the coming in of the coalition government um the it was um it was the the blue and white faction who as far as i can understand it made the decision to shut down the minister of strategic affairs because uh, you know Erdan was succeeded by two ministers in rapid succession I believe it was who I think were both from blue and yeah. white if I remember correctly um and you know and and then basically it was it was then sort of shut down um and to me this represents uh the culmination of a long running kind of intra ministry israeli civil war between the ministry of strategic affairs and the ministry of foreign affairs because the 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 ministry the problem from the zionist perspective from the israeli state's perspective the problem with the ministry of strategic affairs was that it was too open but the 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 silver lining of the ministry of strategic affairs to us was always that it it was too open it did things in a fairly it gave us an insight into what they were doing into into things that in past generations would have been done more stealthily i think and this app was a great example of that yeah. you know they 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 put they just put it out there in this app and they just i don't know they didn't they didn't think from their point of view they didn't think it through very well because it was sort of like oh you know only pro israel people are going to look at this um you know and they we able to send it around our community but you know they didn't they didn't seem to cotton on to the fact that. Well, you know where people like yourself are going to install it for research purposes, um, and it was all in English as well. Well, for the most part, there was Hebrew too, but uh, you know, as I understand it, the majority of it was in English. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, it, it it was. I I my take is that it was shut down because, yeah, it was as you say, it was kind of seen as an embarrassment and too open from from there by their metrics.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And as you say, a lot of this is being folded into uh, foreign affairs. And sorry, and there's also
2: I mean, there's also a question of where this money went. There was a great deal of money sloshing around in this. You know, at one point, as you know, there's the act.il organization because it wasn't just an app. It had these sort of war rooms, quote unquote, um, in several different countries. At one point that had a reported budget of a million dollars annually you know, so it's a question of where all this money went to.
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't see like a drastic expansion of the apps activities or anything like that over the years. I would suggest that uh, it was, you know, had received greater money, he was able to expand um, those kinds of indicators. So it is, yeah, it's a good question of where that money went. And uh, I mean, another aspect of this too, is that uh, while the ministry of strategic affairs might be gone, that, uh, concert is still there. This very shadowy organization that was created basically as a, a slush fund to give money right. covertly to pro-Israel groups around the world um, so that that money wouldn't be tied to the Israeli government uh, for various reasons. I think they uh, there was An approval of $30 million earlier this year uh, for for that money to be put into the slush fund organization. So that'll continue, but yeah, I think it's sort of the the previous style, the bombastic style of the previous minister, uh, the openness, I think that has been abandoned completely and they're back just to this more low profile, uh, uh, totally secret under the radar uh, types of propaganda.
1: Amazing. Finally, Michael, uh, tell us a little bit about how you and CJPME, your organization, is uh, is you know looking at the events over the last week and a half in Palestine. Um, and, and what you're doing as a human rights organization to try and um, you know, really rattle the cages of the members of parliament in Canada who are watching this happen and, and encouraging it. Yeah,
0: I think there's a few things. We've been following it quite closely and we're pretty disappointed but not surprised that the statement from our government was incredibly weak. Um, our Minister of Foreign Affairs put out a, a tweet that was along the lines of calling for de-escalation of all sides. Um, you know, this was after, this was I think sh- maybe Friday or Saturday, Saturday, shortly after the first invasion of Al-Aqsa when 152 people at least were sent to the hospital and there were videos circulating of of um, all sorts of people, journalists, journalists, um, Uh, elderly people on crutches, people being hit with batons and thrown to the ground and all sorts of types of violence. And Canada can't even name the the aggressor, the perpetrator uh, in this, I think, was pretty, pretty obscene. Um, And so, uh, yeah, we've been pushing MPs to speak out. Quite a few have made much stronger statements uh, than that. We right now have an email campaign on our website that uh, can target your local MP as well as uh, key political figures, asking them to clearly condemn this violence and to go further by suspending arms exports uh, to Israel. Um, yeah, 5000 people and, and more have so far uh, sent a letter that way. Um, but but we're continuing to follow this. It's, it's not clear exact, exactly if things are going to, I guess, continue to, to escalate. Um, Or, you know, if it's going to die down, but we're still in the mid of of this uh, holiday season and uh, Israel's actions have not changed. And last night we saw um, pretty intense bombing of sites in Gaza. So uh, we're just going to have to try to continue to make sure that members of parliament can't ignore this or 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 act as if, you know, uh, sort of these like uh, like thoughts and prayers types, right. <laughs> Types of attitude that doesn't actually name uh the the party that is committing the violence, uh, right. that they can't rely on that. Um, so yeah, we're doing what we can. And if you are in Canada and you want to check that out, uh, you can find it on our website at cjpme.org.
1: Michael Buchert, um, your researcher and the vice president of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, cjpme.org again. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. It's always great to have you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Michael. And and stay tuned for an interview with Dr. Tarek Lubani coming up next. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. We turn to the situation in Gaza. In the early morning hours of April 19th, Israeli warplanes launched a series of missile strikes in Khan Yunus in the southern part of the Gaza Strip as part of a string of escalations by the Israeli military. Just four days before, as we reported, Israeli occupation forces attacked Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque, wounding more than 150 Palestinians while it was filled with Ramadan worshipers on one of the holiest days in the Islamic calendar. Six people sustained serious injuries during the hours-long assault on one of the world's most significant religious sites early Friday, according to the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, and more than 400 people were arrested. We're joined today by our good friend, Dr. Tarek Lubani, an emergency room physician based in London, Ontario in Canada, who works closely with physicians and medical personnel inside Gaza. He is the co founder of the GLIA project, which works to provide communities with low cost medical devices using open source technology and 3D printing. GLIA has been working in Gaza since 2014 and has provided healthcare workers there with stethoscopes, face shields, and tourniquets. Tarek, welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Nora. So First off, we're recording this on April 20th and many people on the ground in Palestine are saying that the escalations Israel and its fanatical settler movement are engaging in around Jerusalem uh, are very similar to the provocations we saw last May, which culminated in Israel assaulting Gaza for 11 days and killing hundreds of Palestinians, flattening apartment buildings and office buildings and destroying critical infrastructure. What are your thoughts on what's happening now, especially as an emergency physician and knowing intimately uh, the the medical crisis um, that that could once again happen in Gaza? I
3: mean, that's the thing I think we've kind of realized about Gaza, the crisis is severe and ongoing. And it's hard to uh, really appreciate how much worse it does get. Things are bad, they're always bad. I think we all kind of realize that they're catastrophic. When war hits though, that last little shred that you kind of hang on to uh, is gone. So for example, generally day to day when I'm in the emergency there, I'm dealing with all of the consequences of occupation. It's direct, but not, uh, not in the military sense. When the bombings start, it's, it's a different kind of escalation. In a sense, what we're seeing is we're seeing the uh, made literal what we experience every day in Gaza, people's health is taken from them every day, but in that moment, it's more dramatic, it's more visible. And I think to many uh, physicians and to many Palestinians, when that happens, it's not, it's substantially worse, it's something nobody ever wants. Uh, at the same time, it's it's one of those things that allows us to witness firsthand and in an absolutely tangible and physical way what what the daily occupation is like.
1: Um, what can you tell us about? the medical infrastructure in Gaza right now, um, you know still dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, which is hitting Palestinians hard, um, and the 16-year Israeli blockade, which makes access to critical medicines and um, medical supplies extremely difficult. What's going on now?
3: Yeah, I mean, let's be clear in, in uh, Canada, where I'm working right now, in the hospital where I'm working, there is a massive COVID crisis. And this is despite billions of dollars, thousands of physicians, and lots and lots of energy and effort, and basically no barriers. The biggest barriers, of course, for us, uh, as I'm sure it's probably true for you, is our political leadership. When, When you look at a situation that is so bad, just out of the gate, then of course, we can imagine that when you pile onto that problem, the additional problems of occupation and years and years of blockade, it is bad. The medical infrastructure there is lacking everything. So, for example, if we start with the infrastructural components, there aren't enough hospitals. The hospitals don't have clean water. The clean water um, and electricity are always lacking. And there, of course, aren't enough beds, once you get into the training situation, there aren't enough physicians because, of course, physicians who get trained uh, may want to seek a better life for their families and so may flee as refugees from the Gaza Strip, which is perfectly understandable, but at the same time, devastating to those left behind. And so there is a human resources crunch always. And then, and of course, that's also true in, in London. London has um, a population less than a quarter of that in Gaza. And at the same time, we have over, over, I think, 10 times the number of licensed emergency physicians. So we really are talking about a situation in which the Gazans are left with no infrastructure, no human resources, and then no material. So the material, when we're talking about medications, almost all the medications are uh, on these stockout lists and, uh, of course, medical devices are not to be found. I mean, it is ridiculous to think that I looked at the problem of medical devices and thought, hey, why don't I spend the next 20 years of my life 3D printing these and validating them from scratch? Uh, Really, that was a response to the absolute catastrophe of lack of devices there and the blockade that will not allow them in despite really uh, supposing that it it should allow them through.
1: Um, Can you give us a kind of a a snapshot of the kinds of conditions, kind of, you know, illustrate for us a little bit more about what it's like um, working as a physician in Gaza? under these conditions, um, you know, based, based on uh, the the last time you were there, which was not that long ago. T- talk to us about, you know, just daily life, uh, you know, day in the life of a, of a Gaza physician.
3: You know, Nora, I think up until now, I had kind of reflected upon this uh, a little bit differently. I'd always asked myself, well, what's it like when I make it to the hospital? And one of the things that I realized is that the first problem, the first challenge for me and for every physician is getting out of bed. It feels so overwhelming and it's absolutely devastating on an emotional level. As a doctor, I think when I came into medicine, especially when I came into emergency medicine, I understood that I was going to see bad things, things that nobody should see, things that nobody should experience. And I understood that there would be a little piece of me that I lost every time that I saw one of these cases. In Gaza, that, that happens and it's bad. At the same time, it's not a consequence of just the way in which people live. It feels so imminently reversible. It feels so um, achievable to, to end this and to make it so much better. So the first challenge, and I'm realizing this more and more as me and my Palestinian colleagues discuss our own sort of mental health abilities, the first challenge for every doctor is getting out of bed every day so that they can meet this uh, gargantuan challenge. When we're in the hospitals, of course, we see lots of patients, many more than we do here. There is a mixed blessing in that we can't do much. So for example, in Canada, I have the option of uh, doing blood work or CAT scanning a patient, whereas the reagents are often missing, that's for blood work, and the machines are often broken, that's for things like CAT scans or x-rays. So when we come into the hospital, we're coming into a hospital that's usually quite ragged and broken down to see way too many patients who have waited too long to come in and have pre-existing conditions that make treating them a real challenge. Every doctor knows that the determinants of health are really, really important. In one study on British people, it was found that um, being a little bit poor, so not even homeless poor, still with a job in the the British public service, um, those people had a worse risk as compared to being rich than if they had taken up smoking. So we know the social determinants of health matter. And of course, in the Gaza Strip, they matter even more. Almost every patient I see at this point is suffering from malnutrition, especially the children. And almost all of them have other conditions and diseases. And usually my job in the emergency is just to treat what's in front of me, get them out, and then uh, hope for the best, which is is what I and my colleagues do.
1: We're speaking with Dr. Tarek Lubani. Um, Tarek, uh, talk about the new initiative that you're involved in with the GLIA project. You're calling it Stop the Bleed in Gaza. Um, what's new about this initiative? And, and, and you know, how can people get involved?
3: The Stop the Bleed initiative is a response to a problem that we saw in the 2014 war. In the 2014 war, there were about, uh, the numbers are rough here, so excuse me for, for that. There are about 2,000 people who uh, who were killed. Um, and of them, about a quarter died from bleeding out in a way that should have been treatable. Now, if those people had been in hospital, obviously, we'd have been able to treat them with tourniquets and with our expertise. But also, these kinds of injuries are salvageable if people outside or paramedics uh, are well-trained and have the gear that they need. As a result, the Ministry of Health asked us to start developing a tourniquet, having heard about some of the work that GLIA was doing on 3D-printed medical devices and local production. Now, I had mentioned lots of the bad parts of the blockade and the occupation. Of course, the flip side is that the Palestinians have risen to the challenge in a really incredible way. And so they weren't just sitting there um, lamenting and saying, oh, well, I guess we just have to die now because we don't have tourniquets. They were asking, how can we make these? How can we take control of the situation? Tourniquets are pretty simple. And so we started 3D printing them. And unfortunately, before we were ready, we had to rush them into service in the Great March of Return. Um, during the Great March of Return, there were 22,000 or so casualties. Again, the numbers are rough uh, right now. And approximately 6,000 people were uh, received gunshot wounds, of which about 80% were limb gunshot wounds. These are people who could have easily died. Um, and, and really, those are injuries that are also very treatable. Despite that, The rate of death was only about 0.02%. This is an injury that usually has maybe 10 or 20 times that death rate. So we saw that this campaign worked. When we were talking about the Great March of Return, we were able to take a small number of tourniquets and put them in the right places because we knew where the protests were, we knew where all the paramedics were, and we could work with them and train only the paramedics who were going to be on the field that day now, we want to go further. And we want to make sure that every person living in Gaza, every Palestinian, has access to this potentially life saving treatment. The first stage, which we're fundraising for right now, is to get tourniquets into every ambulance, every hospital, every clinic in the Gaza Strip. And uh, so that's why we're targeting about $25,000. Once we reach that goal, we want to start thinking of the next phase, which is putting it in basically every civilian center that there is, every mall, every uh, grocery store, every mosque, church, synagogue, really everywhere where where we can, where people congregate. And then the last phase would be to make kits available to individuals and families so that they are able to use them as well. This, you know, Nora, um, you've... You and I have talked, and I think you get the sense that what I care about most is that the Palestinians are able to stand up and do things for themselves, that we support them in becoming more independent and self-sufficient. And this project suits that. We're not shipping in tourniquets from outside. We're making them on location using recycled plastic, solar power, and, uh, and seamstresses and tailors who are available on site. So... At the end of this, they end up not just having trinquets that will save lives. Uh, they will also end up having an industry that knows how to make these important devices for, for the foreseeable future.
1: Um, like I, you know, it's it's just, you know, what when I tell people about Glia. Um, you know, or, you know, I'm talking to to friends and family members about the work that you do, we've been friends for a long time. Um, and I tell them that, you know, essential supplies such as tourniquets um, are, are, you know, very hard to find um, in Gaza because of uh, Israel's uh, sadistic 16-year blockade. Along, you know, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, as you said, there's there's a stock list of medications and medical supplies that um, Israel has uh, prevented from from reaching people inside Gaza. Two million people. Um, it's it's kind of it's it's astounding, and it takes people's breath away. How how can people not have tourniquets? How can people not have Uh, syringes and, you know, uh, enough ICU beds, especially in a pandemic. Um, But this is this is the situation in Gaza. And then you add in, you know, uh, successive serial Israeli assaults where people cannot leave. um, And there is no safe place and entire apartment buildings are flattened by, you know, U.S. made uh, Israeli-fired missiles. Um, how do medical personnel even begin to prepare for another Israeli assault with the kind of bare bones um, in, infrastructure uh, that 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 they're working with?
3: We are rapidly trying to uh, scale up the production of tourniquets right now in preparation for a potential attack in, in the coming weeks. This is, as well, you know, another thing that I think is important. The um, the decision of the Ministry of Health in Gaza was to release five hundred tourniquets, um, which was almost the entirety of their supply at the time, uh, to the Ukraine. So, I think one of the things that's also important to know is that while we, as a medical system, I'm not part of the Ministry of Health, but You know, I I consider myself a member of the medical community. While we, as a medical system, are trying our best to deal deal with this situation, we're also not blind to the suffering of other people, and we understand that you know, right now, today, it's Ukrainians who need the tourniquets more. Tomorrow, it might be Palestinians who need the tourniquets more. Um, So I think that that when when we talk about preparing for a situation like this. It's really trying to stock up both in terms of equipment, but also in terms of energy. Just preparing oneself emotionally, talking to one's family you know, about what it means. Because remember, most, most physicians, the majority of physicians in Gaza are women. And most physicians have families. And when they're doing service during the war, um, they, they will be away from their families for a long period of time. And it, lots of people, lots of physicians and lots of nurses will have uh, family members die while they are in service of, of the health of the population. So it's about um, preparing the environment as well as possible. And also that sort of last lingering hug that you give to your family before you go in um, part of it being worried that something might happen to you, and part of it being worried that something might happen to them. So I think it's it, it's in that particular perspective. There, there's no sandbagging, you know. You see it. You see that in the Ukraine. Uh, everything that that could be bombed has been bombed, and ultimately the Israeli bombs are so extensive, and their their campaigns are so extensive that things like sandbagging don't work. So really it's it's uh, about being at the mercy and being at peace with being at the mercy of the Israelis at any moment.
1: And it's extraordinarily generous that the Gaza Ministry of Health uh, would would send tourniquets to Ukraine when... <laughs> You know when Ukraine's president uh, Volodymyr Volodymyr Zelensky has has you know pandered to Israel and said that you know Ukraine is uh, are the Israelis um, and that their their uh, their fight is against a common enemy, and Benny Gantz just today um, said that he would be sending weapons to Ukraine. So it's it's very I mean it's very emblematic of like you know, like physicians. Um, Looking out for for civilians when you know the leadership of whatever government um, is is just sending weapons and and you know calling for more war. That's um, that's extraordinary, um, especially when you know people in Gaza don't have don't have enough. Um, uh, it's that's that's stunning. Um, can you it's,
3: it's one of those interesting paradoxes. It's been yeah. known for quite a while that the people who donate the most to food banks are people who are poorer right and and I think I think this is one of the things that we see. The people in Gaza fully understand what occupation means. They fully yeah. understand what this kind of war means. And they feel for the people in Ukraine. In fact, the largest Expat population, largest immigrant population in Gaza, is Ukrainian, yeah. and there are deep links between between the two uh, areas. I'd say countries, but I don't know that we can say Gaza is a country. Yeah. So it's it, to me, I have never looked at it as, oh, you know, f- that guy. Listen to what he's saying. I don't want to help his people. Right. It, it's not about that. It's it's about people in need and all of us. When I got up this morning it was to help people. When I came to work today, it was to help people. And that's true of every doctor, every nurse, every you know, person who um, cleans the floors in hospitals in Gaza. It's just true of everybody all around. And if it were, you know, the Israelis, even the Israeli population is not our enemy, of course. And if, if they were in need, it would, you know, I don't think anybody I know would hesitate to, to help.
1: Yeah, in the end, it's about people, right. Uh, Dr. Tarek Lubani, give us um, the details on how people can find uh, glia and the Stop the Bleed campaign um, and uh, and tell us uh, what the next steps are.
3: The Stop the Bleed campaign is a way for us outside of Gaza to participate in this effort of Gazans to make themselves a little bit more self-sufficient. They've got the gear, they've got the time, they've got the people, they just need the money at this point. Um, of course, GLIA is participating extensively in this, but there are lots of really important partners, like the people who are doing the training on how to use the tourniquets, including medical aid for Palestinians and uh, and of course the Ministry of Health. So people can help in two big ways. Of course, making a donation is really important. Also, talking to your friends and family about this. We have two big goals here. One of them is to make sure that everybody has a tourniquet who needs it, and the other one is to embed an industry, a medical device industry in Palestine and in the Gaza Strip that is indigenous and that is independent. And hopefully if we can get it started with with these kinds of simpler medical devices like tourniquets, we can escalate and move on to other important uh, medical devices and perhaps in my sort of like fever dreams, maybe even um, medications being able to produce them locally. So if your uh, listeners, watchers, and readers want to go, they can go to stopthebleedgaza.org to make a donation. Every dollar counts, of course, and um, every share on social media or conversation with your friends also counts.
1: Awesome. And of course, we'll have the links up on the Electronic Intifada blog post that accompanies this episode. Dr. Tarek Lubani, um, thank you as always for everything you do and for being with us again on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Please be safe.
3: Thank you. And thank you for all you do, Nora.
2: Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit like, leave a comment, These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on Donate Now. Thank you.